That's okay. We'll preach to both sides anyway. Uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, and I will turn the mic on again. Romans chapter 8. Once again, um, my wife Teresa and I have enjoyed being with you today and uh, her parents this morning. They had to go back to Illinois um, after lunch. But uh, we're very glad to be able to worship with you and uh, look into the Word together tonight. Well, this coming week, we go into a new year, 2015. And I wonder what your expectations are for the new year. Um, It will soon be that new year, and I wonder if you have any plans for this new year, any eagerly anticipated events. Maybe you have some hopes and dreams this year. Um, I don't obviously know most of you here well enough to know what's going on in your lives, but I know different people have different plans for a a new year that that they eagerly anticipate, such as uh, some people graduating from different levels of schooling, or some people uh, getting married, some people having a new baby on the way. Um, Some of us hope to have better health, maybe. Maybe we are waiting on a surgery that's that's, um, uh, supposed to make our life better. Um, I hope you have hopes and dreams for your church this new year, uh, that the Lord will work in uh, drawing more sinners to salvation and in building up people here so they're a more tightly knit group and more effective in, in your gospel mission. So we, we often have a lot of plans in our heads and a lot of anticipations in our heads for a new year. But you know that that is never how it goes, right? Uh, our expectations never match actual events at least not totally. I wonder if we're prepared for what will actually happen. Because this year, there will be strained and broken relationships in your life. There will be things like sickness, things like financial difficulties. Um, There will be church struggles. If you're in a a church, (laughs) there are going to be church struggles of various kinds in the new year. Uh, There will be physical injury. There could be things like war, natural disasters, things on a bigger scale for more people than just you sitting here. We don't know what's going to happen next year. You could lose loved ones. You could die this next year. The only way you can be prepared for this next year and really for the rest of your life is to truly understand that all things are happening for our good if we know the Lord and Of course, I'm assuming that we hear do tonight. But that's the only way we can really be prepared for what life will bring us. Because if we don't understand that God is working all things together for our good, we don't have hope. I noticed the uh, the scripture reading tonight was from the book of Genesis, from the story of Joseph, when his his, um, father and his family came from Canaan to the land of Egypt. That's sort of the end of the story where things are working out And you start to see how God was working through Joseph's misfortunes, um, through his being sold into slavery in Egypt and then going to prison unjustly, etc. We saw how in that story God used Joseph's suffering 
to preserve the people of Israel and uh, to preserve life not only for them but actually for that whole part of the world. So that's a good example of, of how uh, belief in, in God's providence, God's good providence in our lives, uh, preserved God's people. As Joseph said toward the end of that book, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But in Romans chapter 8, we find a text that we often will use to bolster our confidence in this truth that God works all things together for our good. And today we're going to be looking at uh, verse 28 in light of the next two verses, verses 29 and 30. Let's read those three verses right now. Romans 8:28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a lot packed in here. But I think we can immediately see the the big topic, the, the big point that Paul is getting across, and that is that we know that God arranges everything for the good of believers. We know this. God arranges everything for the good of believers. First of all, we have to start with the, with the firm conviction that God controls all things. This is part of what it means to be God, because nothing happens unless it is already part of God's design for history. And God uses this control for the good of believers. Now, how are believers described here? Notice he doesn't say it exactly that way, that all things work together for the good of believers. He says it a little differently. Uh, He describes believers as those who love God. And then he also describes that same group as those who are called according to God's purpose. So first of all, all believers love God. And only believers can love God in this sense. Um, I think it's important for us to understand that those who love God do so because they have been called, as it says after that, in accord with God's purpose. That's explained further in verses 29 and 30. But people who are apart from Christ don't have that love of God in their hearts. The Scripture says that they are at enmity with God. They're at war with God. They are hostile towards God. And they don't see the beauty of God for what it is, and they don't love Him for who He is. But once God, by His Spirit, changes our hearts, gives us the new birth, and once He makes us His child... He plants the seed of that love in our hearts. And we grow in our love of God and of Christ throughout our Christian lives. But if you are a believer here this morning, if you really know Jesus Christ, you can't help but love Him because God has opened your eyes to who He is and to how wonderfully good He is. So as we said, those who love God do that because, as it says, they have been called according to God's purpose. That is, God, God had a purpose for them, and so He called them to Himself in salvation. So I repeat, we know that God arranges everything for the good of believers. But there, the question is, how do we know this? That's really where we're going here. How do we know that God arranges everything for the good of believers? Well, there's two things in, uh, in this passage that, that show us how we know this. 
We know that God arranges everything for our good for two reasons. And first, we know this because of God's eternal purpose for believers. He does have an eternal purpose for us. And that, that uh, demonstrates that He will arrange everything for our good. And second, we know it because of God's irreversible actions toward believers. God has taken certain irreversible actions towards us that, that, will, that will never be thwarted. And those, the, the nature of those actions will show us um, that He really has our best interests at heart and that He really is arranging everything for our good. But first of all, let's look at that, that first reason that we know God is arranging everything for our good. We know it because of His eternal purpose for believers. It says in verse 29 that... Um, yes, in, in verse 29 it says that God has predestined certain people to be like Jesus Christ, His Son. This is when, when God uh, brings people to Himself, He has a very specific purpose an eternal purpose in mind for them. And that is not just to, to just slightly alter them, not just to um, deliver them to a certain extent from, from judgment. It is that. But it's ultimately to make these people like His Son, Jesus Christ. These people will, will reflect Jesus' perfect humanity in every way, body and spirit. We, we talked this morning about how... Christ came, Jesus came, and became one of us, became a man like us, so that He could be our Savior. And so that He could restore us to what we, uh, we were meant to be as God created us. And so that's what this text is saying, that that's God's eternal purpose for us believers, to make us back into that perfect humanity. This was the, the overwhelming desire of Paul's life, for instance. This overwhelming desire for conformity to Christ that drove him. Listen to what he said about it in Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. Paul said, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So notice that Paul saw this conformity to Christ, being like Christ in every way, as the best possible goal for his life. It was the best thing that could happen to him. even if it included things that other people didn't call good. Because notice he said, you know, yes, conform to him in his resurrection, but also in his sufferings. In fact, Paul longed to participate in Christ's sufferings. He wanted conformity to Christ in all things, whether through death or resurrection. And when believers suffer, when we suffer, God is still arranging all things for our good. We have to get a grip on that in our Christian lives. It's not a detour from the plan for good for us. When we suffer, God is, through that suffering, arranging all things for our good. It's the best thing that can happen to us if it conforms us to Christ. 
if it conforms us to Christ. Remember our text from this morning where Hebrews 2.10 tells us it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. If we're supposed to be conformed to Christ, the author of our salvation, we have to suffer. We have to suffer. Because that was his road to glory and it's ours too. Hebrews 5, 7-8 gives us the pattern of Christ. It says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So if we have a Christ-like attitude, we will agree with Paul when he says in Romans 5, 2-4, we also exalt, we rejoice, in hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation, or pressure in life, brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. So remember, anything that makes you more like Jesus is invaluable. So believer, God has predestined you to be like His Son. And He's going to do whatever it takes to accomplish that. It's not because he dislikes you. It's not because he has a vendetta against you. Far from it. It's because he deals with you as a, with a son whom he, is, whom he is changing to be like his son. His only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Now, God has done this, we also see, in order to make his son the head of an entire family. He's predestined believers to be like Jesus Christ, to be conformed to Jesus Christ, in order to make his son the head of an entire family. According to verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 8, believers are full-fledged sons of God by adoption, and thus they are God's heirs. We have an inheritance waiting for us, and that inheritance includes all things. In verses 16 and 17, it says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And in verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? So lest we miss the point, listen to Paul make the point again in Ephesians 1, uh, starting in verse uh, 5. Uh, the point is that we share in Christ's inheritance. All things are going to be brought under Christ's headship. And we've been united with Christ, and so we'll share in Christ's reign over all things. Uh, so in Ephesians 1, Paul again talks about predestination in this context of being conformed to Christ's image and then sharing in his reign. He says, in love, uh, verse 5 of Ephesians 1, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And then down in verse 9 it says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. The whole, per, the whole point of predestination is 
that God would secure an entire family of redeemed humanity who would be made just like Jesus Christ and then would receive an inheritance with Christ. That's the whole point. So God conforms us to Christ's likeness so we will be fit to rule with Christ. If He didn't do that, we wouldn't be fit to rule and to reign one day. So I like what Leon Morris said in his commentary on the book of Romans. He said, It's God's plan that His people become like His Son, not that they should muddle along in modest respectability. See, we have, usually, we have, and I have, much too low expectations for ourselves. Um, God has very high goals for us, higher than ours, usually. And that's what he's aiming for. This is what God considers good. It's, in fact, it's the greatest possible good. He plans to establish a new humanity, a perfect race, with the man, Christ Jesus, his son, as the head. And we, the sons of God, through union with Jesus Christ, God's Son, will reign over all things as God's heirs. And this glorifies God the Father because He directs this plan. It glorifies God the Son because He executes this plan. He carries it out. And it glorifies God the Spirit who, as Paul said a few verses earlier, empowers this plan. This is God the Father's plan and then the Son came to earth to execute it, to carry it out. And the Spirit is now empowering the outworking of this plan in our lives. So everything God does, whether it sounds good or bad to us, ultimately supports this good goal. This is the eternal purpose of God for believers. And because of that, we know that God arranges everything for the good of believers. Because He has that eternal purpose in mind for us, which is good, and therefore He will work everything towards that purpose. And that is good. Secondly, We also know that God arranges everything for our good, for the good of believers, because of his irreversible actions toward them. In other words, God it's not just that God had an eternal purpose, has an eternal purpose. He also has taken irreversible actions to accomplish that. We know he is heavily invested, totally invested, in this good thing happening. He's taken some irreversible actions some unalterable actions toward that happening. So look back at verse 29 in the text. Romans 8:29. For or we know this because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Some people call this the golden chain of redemption. You have all these links of what God has done irreversibly for believers. First of all, foreknowledge. God foreknew certain people. Now, in English, because of how we usually talk about the word knowledge, we often miss the point of this word. Because it's not merely a prior knowledge of what would happen anyway, just a a bare knowledge of fact. In other words, um, it, it's not a prior knowledge, for instance, of independent human faith. The phrase here doesn't say what God foreknew, but rather whom God foreknew. So Paul is talking about God knowing people in advance, and not about God knowing facts concerning people so much. 
This is more of a personal idea than that. And besides, we know the Bible clearly teaches that God does not, in an ultimate sense, react to human faith. Saving faith is actually a gift from God, the Bible teaches. So, He couldn't predestine people to be like Jesus based on some sort of independent faith that they will exercise. In other words, God didn't step back and see and say, okay, what, what is going to happen anyway? <laughs> apart, from, apart from my almighty power, what's going to happen apart from me? And then he puts a stamp of approval on that. That's not the idea here. As Paul says in Philippians 1.29, even our faith is a gift from God. Paul said, for you, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. It's been given as a gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Belief is granted by God. God does not depend on us to decide to believe. Our wills are very much involved, but He's not, in an ultimate sense, dependent on us. He doesn't look through time to see what will happen so He can adjust His plans. Remember, He controls all things. His knowledge is a matter of what He wills to happen, not what He simply foresees will happen. Um, This foreknowledge is is also not a prior knowledge about people so much. Because God knows all the facts about everyone, right? God knows all the facts about everyone. And He always has. If you look at closely at verse 29, you see that all those who are foreknown in this passage, in this way, are eventually justified and glorified. There's an unbroken chain here. All those whom He foreknew, He predestined to Christ's likeness. All those whom He predestined in this way, He called. All those whom He... These whom he called, he justified. All these whom he justified, he glorified. So the Bible clearly and repeatedly states that most of humanity will never be saved from sin and its penalty. We know this, right? Um, Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Not everyone will be saved. But all the people that God foreknows in this way will be glorified, Paul says. But if if Paul's talking here about God merely having advanced knowledge about people, then he's teaching that God will save everyone, and that's just not scriptural. Foreknowledge, what, what, so what does he mean here by foreknowledge? It refers to God's choice before creation to set his special love on certain people. This choice did not depend on anything good in these people, but instead God made this choice of his own free will in order to save those who would not otherwise have ever been good in his sight. The Bible often describes the initiation of a personal, intimate relationship by speaking in terms of knowledge or knowing. This is a, this is a particularly Hebrew idea. Um, we, we find this word for knowledge or knowing, uh, when it's in Hebrew that is, um, used in a very personal way, much more personal than we think of usually. Um, when I say I know my wife, I don't simply mean, hopefully, that I just know a few bare facts about her and her date of birth and so on. I, I know her very personally, on a very personal level, in a very close way. And that's the way the word is used in the Old Testament a lot, too. In Jeremiah 1.5, God makes his prior knowing or knowledge of Jeremiah parallel to his consecration of him. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you in a special way. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God, knowing Jeremiah, set him apart for a special ministry. In Amos 3.2, God says to the nation of Israel, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. And the word translated there, chosen, 
is actually just the Hebrew word meaning to know. Some translations say, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, God knows the facts about everyone, but God had only initiated this special relationship with Israel uh, as a nation. So this is the kind of knowledge we're talking about. Foreknowledge in the sense of this intimate relational knowledge is placing a special love on certain people before they are created. And it means the same thing as another biblical term, election, or a choice. But, but this word for it emphasizes more the intimate, personal aspect of it, the loving choice. Now, this, this uh, teaching is not the, the central point tonight, but it would be good for us to look at it just a few other places that appears throughout the Bible. We only have time for a few examples. For instance, in John fifteen sixteen, Jesus tells his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you. It's also noted in Acts thirteen forty eight, where Luke records the reaction of the Gentiles to the offer of the gospel through Paul and Barnabas. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And then Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul rejoices in God's choice of those who are now believers. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So with all this in mind, lest we get bogged down here, we can see God's first irreversible action toward believers. Before creation, before time and space, if you can conceive of that, I know you can't, but try. Before all that, God freely chose to set his special love on certain people yet to be created. And if you're a believer here tonight, that means he set his special love on you. And this, like all of God's choices, is irreversible. God is independent of time. He's outside time. And so, His choices are not subject to changes of time. He's also self-sufficient. He's independent of His creation. And so, He can't ever be foiled or thwarted by His creation. So, this foreknowledge, this irreversible, unconditional choice was not purposeless. This choice had a goal. And we can understand that goal by understanding the second action of God toward believers. As we already saw, he predestined all these people to be like Jesus Christ. We already explained what this predestination is about. He wanted a whole family of people, a new humanity, who were just like Jesus Christ in glory, who were his sons and daughters through faith in Christ. But here, there's a point that we shouldn't miss. Of those whom God foreknew... Not one will fail to obtain his full inheritance as a son of God. In other words, God did not set his special saving love on you in eternity past, only to at some point along the way say, oh, well, I guess that's, that's messed up. I guess that plan won't work. Um, if he foreknew you, he predestined you to a goal that you will become like Jesus Christ. In the end, there's no question about it. And, but now, how does God work within history, within our, the timeline of each of our lives? How does God work within history 
to, to bring about these first two actions. Well, that brings us to the third action he has toward us. He exercises toward us, and that is that God calls all these people. God calls them. It says in verse 30, And these whom he predestined, he also called. Now, we know that God calls, even invites, even commands all people everywhere to repent. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He says that all who are called in this sense are justified. So Paul often refers elsewhere to believers as those called by God, to the saints at such and such a city, those called in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, something along those lines. It's a special term for believers. This refers to the fact that there is a special call here, distinct from God's general call to all people everywhere. It's an effectual or an effective call. It's a summons which will certainly be answered by all those people whom God foreknew. Now, why do we have to have this? Is God shoving aside certain people <laughs> to just, uh, so that they can't come to Him in faith? No, that's not the idea. The, the point is, we as sinners will never, just in our natural state, we will never come to God of our own initiative. We will never respond to His to the outward call of the gospel just on our own. We will turn around and walk the other way. We are sinners. That's what it is to be a sinner. It means to go the opposite direction of God. So God reaches down, and through this special call, He changes our hearts, turns us toward Himself. Here's here what Paul says briefly about our inability as sinners to come to Christ in our natural state. Romans 3, verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Jesus himself even talked about this call, this effective call to which all who hear it respond with repentant faith. He said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those dead in sins who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father in this way comes to me. John 10, 26, he tells the uh, unbelieving Jews, he says, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, you're not, you don't believe, you don't hear my voice because you're not my sheep, but my sheep do hear my voice and then follow me. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul again links God's choice of certain people with his call to them. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. But what was the way that worked out in history? Well, through sanctification by the Spirit, being set apart by the Holy Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this that He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So when God calls one of his chosen ones, he changes that person's heart, as we said. That person is born again. He's raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. He receives the life-giving Spirit of God living inside of him. And that's the only reason a sinner believes the gospel. His once stone-cold heart is now alive and open to the things of God. His once blind, dead eyes are now alive. He sees God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. His ears were deaf, but they can now hear the sweet sound of Christ's voice calling to him. And he will now follow Christ as one of Christ's sheep. He now has the mind of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So he understands the things of God. He now is a partaker in the divine nature, Peter says. He now has God's seed within him, John says in 1 John. And he cannot continue a life dominated by sin. He now desires, and then grows in that desire, to imitate his Holy Father. But in short, to sum it all up, one whom God calls can do nothing but respond to that call. Not, not that this is some thing God is pushing and shoving someone into externally. God's doing it internally from the heart, changing the person's heart. And so that person turns from a sinful way of life to trusting in Christ as a Savior from sin and as his Lord, as God, as all. When anyone places this faith in the crucified and risen Christ for salvation from sin and eternal life, then that person is declared righteous before God. So that brings us to the fact that God justifies all these people. God's fourth irreversible action toward believers is that he justifies them. God foreknew them. He predestined them to the ultimate goal of being conformed to Christ. He then called them to the gospel and through the inner working of the Spirit through the gospel. And then when they repent and believe in Christ, have faith in Christ alone, they are justified. They're declared righteous, in other words. Uh, justification doesn't mean that, um, that God makes us righteous, uh, that, that God purifies us. That has more to do with regeneration and then the ongoing effects of that in the Christian life as we progressively change. Justification means God, at that very moment of faith, declares you as righteous as Jesus Christ. He, he does that great exchange. Your sins have been placed on Christ. And Christ's righteousness is placed on your account before God. It's a matter of being cleared before God's bar of justice, before the judge of the world. Christ took our sins on himself and felt the full weight of the penalty against that sin on the cross. And then we are credited with all the righteousness that Jesus lived out in his life and all the merit that Christ deserves. And that brings us to the last action of God toward us, and that is that he will glorify all these people whom he foreknew, predestined, called, and justified. When Paul says that God has glorified his chosen ones, he's just restating what he said in verse 29, really. Because for believers, the final glory of conformity to Christ is irreversible. He said that was the eternal purpose. Conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And now the, the glory of, that, of the completion of that purpose is as good as done in the mind of God. Now in the context of this chapter, Romans 8, Paul is not only focused on the complete moral conformity to Christ, complete um, transformation of our hearts, he, that is part of it. 
but he's also specifically focused on the resurrection or the, the glorified bodily state that will accompany our perfect holiness. He even connects this glorified state with our full status as sons of God. Look at verses 10 and 11 of Romans 8. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Let if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The two are connected. The inner transformation and the eventual resurrection. Then down in verse 14 of Romans 8. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What's our adoption as sons here? It's the redemption of our body, when we are conformed body and soul to Christ. Philippians 3, Paul also talks about the resurrection as conformity to Christ. He says, for our citizenship, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He'll transform the body of our humble state our, our humble body into conformity with the body of His glory. Last place we'll look. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. Talking about the resurrection, Paul says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body or a body energized by the Spirit of God. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Back in Romans 8, notice also that these verbs, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, are all in the past tense. They're all past actions of God in, in ter- from Paul's perspective in this chapter. 
this shows us that as far as God is concerned, He has already fully accomplished all these things, all the things on this list. Why? Well, nothing within time can stop the God who formed time and history. So if you're a believer, you are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ. If it's possible for you to miss out on your final inheritance and conformity to Jesus Christ, if it's possible for you not to be presented before God perfect in body and in spirit, then God is not God, simply put. If God's purposes can be thwarted, especially in this sense, then God is not who he claims to be. That's good news. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. You are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. You are part of Christ's own body. Scripture says that you are part of his glorious bride who will be without spot or wrinkle or defect. And nothing can undo that. So yes, God arranges everything for the good of believers. Everything in time and eternity conforms to and supports this good of, of God's chosen ones, of of those he's called to himself. We know that for certain, as we said, because of God's eternal purpose toward us and his, his irreversible actions, his unalterable actions toward us to, to accomplish that purpose. They're all aimed at conforming us to Jesus Christ, and that's the best good that could ever be. And this great purpose for you as a believer, as his child, is part of his overarching purpose for all things, which is his own glory. We know that God is the only one who can work all things for his own glory and be good, because he deserves all things for his own glory. But the amazing thing to me, I hope the amazing thing to you, is that our ultimate good can be part of that purpose of God's glory. God delights to bring glory to himself by pouring out his goodness and his kindness on us and changing us from the, the perverse sinners we started out as, changing us to be just as holy as Jesus Christ and just as glorious as Jesus Christ. Not equal in glory as God, may it never be, but, but part of that family of redeemed sinners who are now heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. When God does that in a sinner's life, that brings huge glory to him. His righteousness, wisdom, and mercy are all put on display so that all creation can look at that and go, wow, wonder. So maybe, maybe we need to adjust our definition of good. Maybe that's one of our biggest problems in life. When life is going well for you, know that it's that way because God delights to freely give you every good thing because of Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're in Jesus Christ, and so God delights to give you every good thing as His child. And when life is obviously going good for you, you can rejoice in that, knowing that that's why it's happening. Learn to rejoice in God's love like Jesus did. But when you suffer, remember that God has given you a loving gift. He is conforming you to the likeness of Jesus, our suffering Savior. He is teaching you to trust and obey as he did to Jesus, the faithful servant of the Lord. We talked this morning about how Jesus was fully God and fully man. As Luke says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew and learned. I can't understand that, but he did as a man. 
And just like the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 2 this morning said that uh, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. That's how God works in our lives too. He, we learn obedience through the things that we suffer. And that conforms us to the likeness of Jesus. Everything that happens to you happens so that you will learn how to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. All the good things and all, and all the things we call bad sometimes are tragic. Everything happens so we will value Christ above everything else and conformity to Christ above everything else. And nothing better can happen to you. On this side of the scale, we can put all sorts of things to weigh against the worth of that. We can put the security of earthly family and friends. That can't compare to the fellowship of heaven. The Bible says you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to his sprinkled blood. You put the American dream over on this side, this end of the scale, having a nice, comfortable, healthy life of ease. And though those are nice things in and of themselves, that American dream is a steaming heap of garbage if it's compared to our glory with Christ. That's what Paul said, isn't it? They're all rubbish. So earthly comfort is of negative value if it opposes eternal peace and joy. This world passes away along with all of its desires, but whoever loves God and shares his desires abides forever, the Bible says. So God's eternal purpose for us and his irreversible actions toward us bring about our best possible good. Nothing can oppose them. So if God is for us, who or what can be against us? Nothing. Let's go to God in prayer tonight. Father, we are weak and frail and sinful still. And we struggle, you know we struggle, with the things you providentially bring into our lives. And sometimes the genuine evil you allow to happen or the genuine tragedy you allow to happen. Help us to be focused on what you've told us in your word, on your promises, your great and precious promises to us, that we have been given the gift of becoming like Christ, of partaking in your divine nature. Help us to value Christ and value Christ's likeness above everything else. Help us to rejoice when things go well, but when things do not go well, help us to persevere. Help us to rejoice and exalt even in tribulation because we know what it produces. Help us to love you and not question you simply because we don't like our circumstances. We know that there is genuine pain in this life, genuine grief, but we thank you that you walk with us through that and that you help us to see a much greater purpose and eternal plan than we could have ever conceived on our own, of which even that tragedy is a part. We pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.